It's all about the beef. In this episode, Dr. Bob Dilmore with Colorado State University talks about the accuracy of the U.S. beef grading system, trends like grass-fed Wagyu beef, how the quality of beef has shifted in the last 50 years, and what we as ranchers need to know about the beef packing part of the cattle industry on this episode of the Working Ranch Podcast. Welcome to the Working Ranch Podcast. I'm Justin Mills, your host. Thank you for joining us on this episode. Have you ever done something working by yourself when you just kind of have to laugh out loud at what you were thinking? I'm going to have to admit that in my intro on this episode today, I used the phrase, it's all about the beef. Now, what spurred that phrase was a song by Megan Trainer called, it's all about the bass, about the bass, no treble. I had to laugh out loud a little bit because for <laughs> those of you listening over 50 years old probably have no clue who Megan Trainer even is and what's about the bass even mean. But for those 35 to 50 you're probably rolling your eyes maybe a little bit here but those under 35 definitely recognize who i was talking about and probably now singing in your head it's all about the beef about the beef no trouble anyway i digress very rapidly here to get our show started today but as you would guess we are talking about beef harvesting segment of the industry specifically grading trends demand and just some other great information from our guest today dr bob dalemore from colorado state university there in fort collins well, have you read through your latest copy of the Working Ranch magazine? Always one of the more popular sections of each issue is the Rancher's Journal, sponsored by Wrangler, where we get a look inside of an operation of a working ranch or a cattle operation. And in this April-May issue, Ginger Cheney journals about their family ranch down in Blue, Arizona, a ranch that was homesteaded in 1891 by her great-great-grandfather. There are currently six generations living there on the ranch. I said that, six generations. How many how many families can say that? Be sure to check it out on the latest issue of the Working Ranch magazine, as well as many other great articles and features there. And if you do not have a subscription, you can give me a call or text me here at 307 360 cows or you can email me at justin.workingranch at gmail.com. I'll get you hooked up on ways you can get subscribed, or you can also head to the website at workingranchmag.com. Well, just a couple quick items to remind you about. If you were listening to the previous episode, the captain passed along an exciting new announcement for us here at the Working Ranch Podcast, as we will begin airing the show on Rural Radio Channel 147 on Sirius XM. You can tune in at 12 noon Eastern every Every Saturday, and we'll be starting that on April 24th. Also, if you're heading to Las Vegas this year for the National Finals Rodeo, I'd like to meet you there. Yes, it'll be at the Working Ranch Expo. New this year, it's going to be December 8th through the 10th, right there close to Cowboy Christmas. We hope you'll join us if you'd like to exhibit or want more information as you attend there, the Working Ranch Expo, December 8th through the 10th in Las Vegas. You can find out more by going to workingranchmag.com for more information. Well, sponsors of this episode include the American Simmental Association, and there's been some fundamental changes that the American Simmental Association has brought to the table, trying to help ranchers move their operations forward. Things like pedigree knowledge with performance records, and now some very advanced genomics. And genomics is a term, folks, that we are not getting away from here in the cattle business, and it is very exciting what's coming down in regards to cattle genomics, providing more protection.
unpredictability to the producer that you can make management decisions that increase your profitability. Sim Genetics, profit through science. Find out more at Simmental.org. Also, sponsors include Central Life Sciences, and it's kind of that time of year where we need good fly control. Check out Altacid IGR fly control products. Also, the North American Limousine Foundation, Corteva, and their new DuraCore herbicide for weed control in your pastures, and the American Hereford Association. Well, let's check in now with the captain, Tim O'Byrne, publisher and editor of Working Ranch Magazine for this episode's edition of Tim's Two Cents. Hey, Justin. Hey, everybody. Remember when we were kids and we'd yell at Dad, we need to get a four-wheel drive. The Johnsons have one. And he'd say something like, all you boys are going to do is get it stuck. And he was right. We did get the truck stuck probably the first week out, hopelessly stuck. But today, everybody, doesn't matter if you live in Florida, everybody's got an SUV out there, four-wheel drive, digging, just a clawing, scratching. And the name of the game is take it out out of the city on the weekend and just go high-tailing it through the right riparian areas. You see the commercials all the time on TV. They're just uh, plowing through the meadows and heading to the mountains where there's no bars. And what are we doing? We're chasing behind them, trying to tell them, hey, slow her down. Uh, you don't want to be driving through that. We don't drive on that grassland. We're trying to take care of this sustainable environment here. Maybe one day they're going to get it. That's my two cents, Justin. Back to you. Oh, man, isn't that the truth, Captain? I'll tell you, I can attest to it firsthand. As I see a lot of times, it is typically non-agricultural folks four-wheeling out in our Thunder Basin National Grasslands, an area that, of course, we use for grazing but also for a lot of hunting and fishing that takes place so it is just a little bit frustrating to say the least when you see that kind of activity going on so appreciate your two cents captain well stay with us when we come back it's all about the beef about the beef as dr bob delmore joins us for this episode's feature interview Starting off in the right direction is essential to gaining an advantage later when you go to market your calves. And I have proof that the right direction is with Sim Angus Sired Calves. A 2020 study by K-State showed that Sim Angus Sired Steer Calves earn more at sale time than all other breed identified sire groups with at least 50 lots represented on Superior Livestock's 2020 summer sales. The proof's right there. For low-risk, high-potential calves with earning potential, be confident that Sim Genetics will give you more per head, period. Stand strong, Simmental. Welcome back to the Working Ranch Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Mills, as this week's main feature interview is sponsored by Corteva AgriScience. Keep weeds out of the way with new DuraCore herbicide and make the most of your pasture. Learn more at DuraCoreHerbicide.com. Well, as I said at the top of the program, our guest today is Dr. Bob Delmore. And when I had started researching our topic of the U.S. meat grading system, as well as many of the questions that I have that we're going to get into on this episode directly related to the meat part of the ranching cattle chain, I was visiting with the captain, Tim O'Byrne, about it, and he suggested that I visit with Dr. Delmore 
who is a professor at the Department of Animal Science at Colorado State University. Also, he oversees the College Meats Processing Facility. He's a past president of the American Meat Science Association and just has a tremendous amount of knowledge and experience all the way from the packing and processing to food safety, regulations, research and development regarding the meat industry. So, Dr. Dilmore, thank you for joining us here on the Working Ranch Podcast. My pleasure. appreciate the opportunity. Now, this might be a little bit elementary for some listening, but I, I just want to start back with the basics about the U.S. beef grading system because it's it's been a lot of years since I was at FFA and participated in meat judging team, and I think I only did it for a couple of years. So to start, explain how the beef grading system works here in the United States. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to do it. Um, first and foremost, the, the beef grading system is run by the USDA um, Ag Marketing Service. Um, they do an amazing job. Uh, the beef grading system is the envy of the world. Uh, the beef grading system is widely um, used, and there's two components to it, the quality grading system and the yield grading system. And the quality grading system is based on two primary factors, marbling, and by goodness, please use marbling. Don't use crazy words like marbleization like they do on the Food <laughs> Network. Marbling, little flecks of fat that are in, uh, in the muscle, and maturity and most speci- more specifically, physiological maturity. Um, we look at the animal basically um, 36 to 48 hours post-mortem, and we take a cross-section, we rib it, we cut it between the 12th and 13th rib. We allow it to bloom. Got to do that. Mm-hmm. We allow it to bloom, uh, get that color up, and then the grader is going to look at the maturity and determine if the animal is young, A, maturity, and then if they've got enough marbling uh, to grade or where that marbling is going to uh, uh, be so that they can call the grade. We also have yield grading, and we use the factors of back fat, ribeye area, hot carcass weight, and percent kidney, pelvic, and heart fat. And the grader can also use those four factors. Uh, it's, an, it's not the same equation that you learned. It's a shortened equation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they can use those four factors to determine if the animal is one, two, three, four, or five. And if you remember, one is higher yielding, but a lower number, kind of like a golf score. And so that's going to be a higher yielding carcass. Uh, So we have both of those um, systems used in in this country. Um, They're also augmented, and maybe we'll talk a little bit about that um, later on, but they can uh, be augmented. Um, But to shorten up my answer, the grading system works well in this country because it differentiates um, our product and it pro- provides a variety of items uh, depending on what the customer wants. So it works very well. When you talk about it's a USDA grader, um, when it comes to a human eye, how accurate is that system? Well, that's our gold standard right now is, is the human eye. Um, obviously, uh, they're trained. They're trained extensively. Men and women that go into that profession uh, spend a great deal of time and what we call correlation sessions, or an older term for it you might have heard is norming, um, where they are working off of what we call marbling cards. And those cards are the standard cards or the standard picture of what an expectation would be for, say, for instance, small zero marbling, which is the lowest marbling score that you would need um, to grade choice. So they spend a tremendous amount of time, and um, they're checked, if you will, um, by their supervisors, um, and what we know about the grading system and what we know about looking at marbling is it doesn't answer every question there ever was um, about 
tenderness, flavor, and juiciness. Uh, but it does a great job of when we segregate those animals, segregate those carcasses um, into quality grades. We know through a lot of different research and research that we've done at Colorado State University that as the marbling score goes up, the satisfactory eating experience goes up mm-hmm. to the tune of 100% when you're in the prime category. The likelihood of having an unhappy eating experience with eating a prime steak is virtually zero. Okay, now that's interesting, and we're going to come back to meat quality in just a bit. But before we move completely away from this process of the grading system that we've been talking about, how has technology been integrated in the U.S. meat grading system currently? Is the human eye still going to stay as the gold standard? So when I was you know, very young and, and taking classes, we always had our professors telling us that we were going to have this tool one day where we're going to be able to augment the graders or help out the graders. Mm-hmm. Because we, we know that people are, that, uh, you know, humans are fallible and sometimes they get chewed out on the way to work and they have a bad day and that could impact what they're doing. And we also know that when they're looking at the, um, the highs and the lows as it comes to back fat or ribeye area or for that matter, marbling score, we know that uh, there can be a little bit of variation. And so in about 2009, I think is when we got our official ability to use a camera system. And um, the short description about that is, is there was a lot of effort put into identifying um, a camera that can take a picture of that cross-section, identify the fat, identify all the pixels that are in that muscle. First, these folks taught the camera how to just pick out the muscle, and then they taught them how to differentiate between lean and fat. And again, a lot of work was uh, done here at Colorado State by a lot of folks before I got here, and they did an excellent job. And that camera has to go through a lot of uh, different approvals that the federal government has. So you can't just take your iPhone and sit up there and take iPhone pictures and say, you know, is this going to grade? Mm-hmm. Um, the camera is a, is a robust system. Um, the camera is checked. It has a calibration um, that they do each morning. Um, they do a double check, if you will, um, with the daily operation of the camera. And then they have a marbling check. So it looks at uh, both the size of something and the marbling. And the way that that camera is used, um, the camera can be used for 100% of the grading, but it always has the USDA inspector as the, excuse me, grader as the oversight. So the camera says, I think that this is small 50. If the grader doesn't think that that's correct or the grader thinks that it's lower than that, the grader has the ability to change that. So plants are basically using two methods of grading, if you will. They're using either 100% USDA grader or they're using the camera with the grader um, involved. And we've been doing that for a while. Um, you know, when the people that I talk to with the checks and balances that are in the system, it works very well. Um, the reason that some people don't use um, the camera for grading is, you know, they believe that uh, the grader does very well for them. And so they use the grader. The grader is also involved in uh, other certification programs. So in addition to just assigning yield and quality grade, or most of the time just uh, quality grade, they're also involved in, in other uh, branded programs that are out there involved in that certification. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think if you look at it, uh, some of the numbers I saw the other day is, you know, north of 60% are uh, using a camera. Uh, that does change a little bit. Uh, but again, that third-partiness um, of the grading system is important. So while the camera is owned by the plant, the camera is documented and the tests are all shown to the USDA grader. They're that third party and they ultimately have oversight 
of all of the grading that goes on to the plant, the end of the plant. Remember, grading is a voluntary system. So if a plant or a packer wants to use grading, um, then they will pay the USDA Ag Marketing Service for that third-party system. Okay, that's good to know because I think everybody would somewhat assumes that that's just part of a packing process. Yeah, and so, uh, for example, we have a small facility here on the campus. We do not have a grader on a daily basis. We have an inspector, mm-hmm. and so when we slaughter, we're under inspection. Um, but obviously, the, the big plants, um, and when I say big, you know, probably plants that are certainly above, you know, two or 300 a day, and then obviously up to the, to the big to the big, big plants of 5,000, that grader is an integral part of what they do. Uh, but again, that is a third-party independent. When you go into the cooler and you see the blue hat, um, that's the USDA grader. He or she does not report to the plant. He or she reports to their uh, grading supervisor. Um, and so that third-partiness is important. Um, the system wouldn't be as valuable uh, if it wasn't an independent third party. Yeah, absolutely. Let's go back now to the carcasses. You talked a little bit about the eating experience that somebody has and how that increases through the quality of that carcass. And so what is the most valuable carcass out there? What, are, what, should, we be, what should we be aiming for? Oh, my goodness. Okay, so, Justin, this is like a trick question, and we should be on to my second beer by now <laughs> to try to uh, answer this question for you well. And it gets a little bit tricky, so let, let me try to answer it the Bob Delmore way. Um, the first thing that you got on the phone um, talking about um, was cows that were bred for you. And, you know, that becomes a really important factor. Um, while you are a part of the beef system, you're an important part of that beef chain, Um if you focus all your time and effort on carcass attributes and not on reproduction and you have open cows, um, then you're going to need a third day job because you're just not going to be able to make it work. Mm -hmm. So I think when people ask me that question, I say it depends on a lot of different things. So I had a friend of mine in here the other day and I was asking him some question on what kind of cattle um, he needed. And he gave me a list of the types of cattle um, that he needed and source verified was an important one for him. He needed some more age-verified cattle. That was important for him. Uh, He needed never-evers. That was important for him. So I think um, the simple answer to your question is, is the folks that are in doing what you do, they need to go out there and look at the types of programs that are available to them. And in some places, that program opportunity might serve them very well, depending on what they're doing and what kind of cow, um, you know, they have and what kind of system they have. In other places, if you tried to do that, um, it would fail. So I don't have a simple answer for you. Mm-hmm. Um, as we talk to, as we look at the, the notion of prime beef, and I'm guessing that you'll probably ask a question about the Wagyu's. If we talk about prime beef, the demand is there. The demand is, uh, is unbelievable. Even through all of the COVID nonsense, the demand for prime beef um, at retail has been very, very um, high. And so you all have pushed and we have used the right genetics and we have fed cattle um, smartly and, quite frankly, longer uh, for a lot of years. And that uh, prime and choice percentage is increasing in the first quarter of this year. It's increasing to a point where, you know, these are numbers you haven't seen before where 84 percent are grading prime and choice. Um, You know, when you teach the students, you tell them, you know, for years, we'd kind of figure on that three, four, five, three to six percent that would grade prime. And, you know, last year we had approaching 12 percent. 
This year we have approaching 12%. So a lot of folks have obviously selected uh, cattle that are going to marble, knowing that that uh, is important in, in our system today. Uh, our customers like highly marbled beef. Mm-hmm. We've seen an increase in demand for grass-fed beef, and I'm not going to go negative on grass-fed because there is a very legitimate market there that we cannot ignore. But how, on average, is grass-fed beef grading? Yeah, and I would never run down grass-fed beef. I've got lots of friends that have very successful grass-fed programs. They have um, a clientele, and that's the product that they want. And mm-hmm. I say, you bet. Uh, better than other alternatives that we're still talking beef. Yeah. So historically, grass-fed beef um, would not have fit in, in, in our grading system very well, um, primarily because it would have been certainly older, but it also would have had very little marbling. So we have, uh, I don't want to say it's a, a new program, but we have new emphasis on graded grass-fed beef um, because our customers um, want grass-fed beef that might grade choice or higher. And so you have people that are working very hard to get those animals on the highest plane of nutrition that they can, still meeting the requirements that they have of pasture or grass or whatever their particular uh, access to pasture requirement is for their program. And so they're trying to get them on the highest plane of nutrition that they can um, without, uh, without grain. And you hear some stories of there are some, some folks that are, that are doing that and uh, are uh, working into the grading system. And they've created, um, you know, again, it's an overused word, but they've created another niche for themselves of, uh, you know, of a graded grass-fed program. Most of the grass-fed programs or a great number of the grass-fed programs that you would see online and Facebook and other places, you know, those would be um, oftentimes older animals just to get the weight that they need, and they probably wouldn't have the marbling. Um, But we're starting to see some folks move in that other direction. Let's talk another market, and that's the Wagyu market you mentioned a little bit ago. And yet, you're right. I was going to ask you a question on it. So there is also a growing segment in the industry of placing Wagyu bulls on commercial herds. Is there a future for this highly marbled product? Yeah. One of my buddies took me out the other day to show me his Wagyu bull. And all I could say is it's kind of like looking at a baby. And uh, you don't want to say anything about whether that baby is beautiful or not. And um, I asked him, and I trust him, and I asked a couple of other folks, um, the question is this for real, is this going to stay around? Um, and before I tell you what uh, they said to me, um, we, uh, we work with some folks and we've got a lot of research going on here at the university and, um, a good part of our yard is full right now of Wagyu. Uh, we've got a lot of folks asking a lot of questions, both from the feeding end, both from the finishing end, um, as it relates to fat, um, as it relates to nutrition, as it relates to cutability, quality, um, so I think the answer is, yeah, there, yes, rather, there is a, um, a, a segment of the population that likes that taste, um, likes that very, very ultra high uh, quality beef, uh, that buttery flavor. Um, you know, my sister, who's never uh, eaten a good steak in her life, she just eats chicken. I don't know what happened to her somehow <laughs> down the road. Um, she wouldn't like this. Uh, it, it wouldn't work for her. But the folks uh, that like that flavor, yeah, we're getting a lot of calls about it. Uh, we're getting more uh, people are looking to try to figure out how they can build programs around it. Uh, once they figure out how to get the number um, up, obviously, these critters, as you know, uh, we're feeding them for a very long period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say I, I'm no expert in, in Wagyu. Um, I'm starting to get more understanding about it because uh, we process about every three weeks. We'll process between 20, between 10 and 12 here at the university. 
Um, so I've seen my share of thousand pound carcasses, um, but the marbling obviously is is unbelievable. Um, the eating experience is is unbelievable, and so I think the answer is yes. Um, do I even have a sense of what percentage it would make up? The answer is no way. I'd be absolutely spitballing if I had to guess. Um, but there's enough folks that I've talked to that I trust um, that say, "Yeah, Bob, you need to you know you need to understand more about this. Figure out where it uh, fits." Um, who knows? Maybe there'll be some uh, some additional uh, marbling cards higher up on the on the top of the marbling system in the U.S. someday. Well, stay with us when we come back. We're going to continue our conversation with Dr. Dilmore about the quality of the beef supply in the United States. How has it evolved over the last several years? For example, what was the U.S. beef supply grading in 1970 versus today? That's coming up next. Hear that? It's a quiet, easy-handling Hereford cow. That's right. No broken fences, no busted gates, no injured people. Herefords lead the way in the silent traits and fertility. Studies show they increase profitability by more than $51 per cow per year at the same time. That's real money and real results. Isn't it time for you to come home to Hereford? Learn more at Hereford.org. Welcome back to the Working Ranch Podcast. I'm Justin Mills, your host, and my guest for this episode is Dr. Bob Delmore from Colorado State University. And when we left for the break, I had posed the question about the quality of the U.S. beef supply today versus 50 years ago. So, Dr. Delmore, now you may not have been involved in the beef industry 60 years ago, but how has the quality of beef changed over the years? Yeah, I appreciate that. I uh, I used to be the youngest in the room, and, and I'm no longer the youngest in the room. Um, but I did go back and, you know, and just relook at, at some of the numbers. And, you know, the, the beef quality audit is is a good place to look at some of those numbers. And as you look in, you know, they, we did one in 74, and that was the one that we all looked at, and it was about 70-plus percent grade and prime and choice. And then you leveled out it, you know, in the mid-50s. And then in, you jumped to 61%, 71%, and then in 20, you know, 2020, 2019, um, you know, we're approaching 80%. And in the first quarter, we're 84% prime and choice. So the numbers are amazing. And the people in this industry have done a phenomenal job and another conversation that we ought to have because they don't get enough credit. But the where is it coming from? Well, it comes from a variety of things. Obviously, genetic selection is, um, you know, is an amazing component of it. And feeding, um, the, the feeding component of understanding what it is that we do and how to maximize um, those cattle, uh, because there has been great demand or is great demand for this product, the genetic selection um, and, uh, you know, the, the way we feed cattle and how long we feed cattle, we've answered that, we've answered that call. Um, it continues to go up. Again, I, I don't know where the top is. I, I think that uh, it'll probably settle back down a little bit. Um, but there's such demand, people are trying to do their best, and um, and they're meeting that need right now. Um, you know, we always are short prime beef. There's never enough prime beef. And when the restaurants open back up, as I hope to goodness, knock on wood, I hope to goodness here in the next two, three, four months, everybody's getting back up to, to full numbers. You can't run a restaurant on 17% people. But as they get um, back up, we're going to see, uh, put a little bit more pressure on that, um, because the retailers have been using a good deal of that. Um, now those folks in food service are going to need some of that back. Um, but yeah, you folks have done an amazing job over the last definitely 25, 30 years. 
We've seen an increase in plant-based beef alternatives. What does the beef industry or how should the beef industry handle this? Yeah, so this is just Bob Delmore's opinion. And, uh, you know, I'm just, uh, I'm a college professor and and, uh, I typically, I say, let the market um, dictate. But I'll add a caveat to that because I think um, some of the folks that are selling that product um, right now are being um, dishonest. And and I'll say that uh, candidly. I think that's okay to say that Mm -hmm. um, because the product, um, while it certainly is a creative product and from a food uh, science standpoint, it is is very well-designed product. It is, in fact, not meat. With all due respect to those individuals, it is not meat. And while I think that there are folks that uh, appreciate that, um, and, and I say I welcome them, um, I would like to see our industry continue to, uh, while um, remain strong in articulating what our product is and what our product isn't, because our product is not a drag on society and bad for the environment. In fact, it's just the opposite. Um, we have lots of data that uh, supports that. Our product is nutritionally dense, uh, which, again, we've forgotten how to, uh, how to teach that. Um, it's got amazingly high digestibility when you consume um, meat products, much higher digestibility uh, than consuming plant-based products. And so I think there's a lot of things that we just need to continue to do and say and articulate about what our product does. I'd like to see more discussion about use of the first thing that came out of your mouth, which was forage in your cows. Um, We don't do a good job of explaining to folks uh, why uh, the use of forage across a big portion of the West and in other parts of this country, uh, we need to be very thankful for that cow. Uh, We also need to use that cow on more forage in the West, especially those places that have not been grazed in many, many, many years. So the long college professor answer to that is, um, I, I, I certainly appreciate the, uh, the, that product. Uh, it isn't meat. Um, we'll see what customers want. Uh, I don't believe that our industry is, you know, um, headed for the scrap heap by any stretch of the imagination. I think this is like all the other challenges that we continue to face, whether it's weather challenges or political challenges. Um, we have a challenge with uh, some folks that are doing a good job of advertising their product uh, at the negative expense of ours. And I'm, I'm hoping that the folks that uh, aren't listening here, but that are in cities and places like that, we can continue to talk to and say, well, let me tell you what it is that Justin does and what it is that he doesn't do mm-hmm. um, as it contributes to the beef system. And I think that um, becomes very important to continue that dialogue and continue being as transparent as we possibly can about how good our product is. If I had to walk a day in your shoes or a week or a year in your shoes and being as tied into the meat industry as you are, what would I see or learn that would help me in providing a better product that's more profitable to me as a rancher? Man, Justin, you saved up all the hard questions. What was, where were the big softball questions yesterday? I could have used a couple of those. Um, you know, uh, I, I taught a student uh, the other day, and this student grew up in Puerto Rico, and actually um, he served in the armed forces. He's a member of the Army, and so he served our country, and And we were talking about variation in cattle size. And so we uh, had a class for a class of animals for this class that we were teaching, and we had an amazing steer that somebody picked out of the feed yard for us that weighed 1,700 pounds. Uh, we had a really nice kind of solid middle-of-the-road Black steer, um, you know, not a ton of muscle, but a really good 
um, black steer that was probably about 1,350 pounds. And then we had uh, a heifer uh, that a friend of mine um, needed processed and fit my class very well. Uh, she was really, really um, light muscled. We slaughtered those. We looked at them. Uh, they all graded, which is which is phenomenal. Um, you know, that big steer had a ton of muscle, but he had a 16-inch eye. Mm-hmm. And that little heifer had an 8-inch eye. So one of the challenges is certainly the variation. You're not going to hear me cuss a carcass size um, because that it's kind of a you know it, it's kind of a phony discussion in in my world because we use them all and and most people use them all and and uh, NCBA and others have done a good job of coming up with methods to fabricate those but variation is certainly a challenge um, that we face uh, in our system um, one of the things that I you know was saying earlier to you before we got on the air was depending on what part of the country you're in you know cow size is a is an important discussion and some places on irrigated pasture and you got plenty of feed, you know, your cow size, you know, can be one thing, but I'm guessing not even being up to your operation, but I'm guessing that your cows are pretty modest. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't, you know, I'm guessing. Mm -hmm. And so I think that we have to balance out what it is that you can control on your day in and day out. If you're paying attention to marbling as your first thing, I don't think it's going to work for you, but does it become a factor in, in your system agent source verification. Maybe it does. Maybe you look at this and you say, Hey, I've got some places that want to pay a little bit of a premium for these calves. And all I need to do is X, Y, Z, whatever their program yields. So, I mean, I think the, the, the long discussion is, is continued, you know, conversation about, you know, what the industry needs. Um, I'm a believer in the audits. We're getting ready to, uh, to do the, the next version of the beef quality audit in, and I think some folks kind of forget that they do have value. It's a snapshot in time. I think that uh, packers, especially, you know, smaller packers and specialty packers are looking for opportunities to partner with folks. Um, the other thing that I would say is, as I kind of wind it down is that it's a challenge because we don't want to be disrespectful. Um, are you guys raising beef or are you raising a calf that goes into the beef production system in this country? And I think there's some subtle differences because, you know, that calf, obviously, when we take it from you, it doesn't go, you know, into the plant. It's got to go through, um, you know, multiple systems. It has to, you know, it goes, it has to go into, you know, some sort of a stalker program, has to go into a feed yard, and then ultimately it has to, it has to get into the packer. And then we've got to do um, our thing with it there. So it's, uh, it's a long, complicated answer. Um, I think there's lots of creative people, um, plants that I'm talking to, both new plants and old plants that are looking for people that have good calves and want to be part of a progressive system and maybe something that, you know, dad or grandma 20 years ago, or even, you know, five years ago, five years ago would have said, there's no way we're going to, you know, use X, Y, Z bull. We've never done that. We're not going to do it. Maybe there's some opportunity to, uh, to think about um, that. The one example that I'll, that I'll give you is, um, you know, the use of brands and, um, you know, branding is an important part of, of what you all do. And it's an important tradition in our heritage, and I respect it absolutely. But when, and of course, it doesn't, the argument doesn't work real well right now because the high prices are so bad. But when high prices were better and we were looking for ways to not have the high price damaged, you know, we talked about reducing brands and when you don't need them. You know, years ago, lots of people that, you know, cattle going to feed yard, they'd automatically get a brand. So I think there's examples of, of things that we've done really well in responding to uh, the continual kind of evolution of the type of product that we market. 
This next question, I'm not going to ask you to really defend the packing industry or to um, criticize them in any way, but I think because you have so much knowledge of the meat industry, what do you think are some disconnects that a rancher has with the packing industry? Yeah, so this 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 is where you're probably going to get, you know, if I'm, if I'm not careful, this is where they're going to push the button. I mean, again, I talked to, uh, I have a good buddy of mine, feeds a lot of cattle. Um, I talked to an, another friend of mine and, and, you know, when you're having these discussions, um, when the prices are the way that they are, um, is extremely complicated. Yeah. And there, there's no doubt that we, you know, we, we need a little bit of, uh, we need to change the mix just a little bit. Um, but I think it's not always roses. While the numbers obviously look very good and they are very good right now, let's make no bones about it on the packing side. The numbers are very good right now. Um, having spent a lot of time in plants, I worked for six years in a, in a pork packing plant, and I have you know lots of friends in this industry. It is still a very complicated in the plant. Um, what we do is isn't easy. Um, as we've gotten more, um, as our customers have expanded, and you know when you think about 20, 30 years ago, you might kill two types of cattle, um, you know, in a day. And now where we might spread that harvest out amongst five, six, seven, eight, nine different types of programs, when we do line changes in the plant um, on the fabrication floor and we're going through all these different types of programs, it becomes, you know, a very complicated um, beast uh, to manage. Uh, managing the packing um, isn't easy. Uh, the other thing that is challenging, as, uh, as you certainly know and all your listeners know, is uh, folks that want to work in a plant. Um, that isn't an easy thing uh, for the folks in the plants to do every day, which is to find um, people that, that want to work in a plant. And we can have the debates of, you know, there's plants that pay better, there's plants that pay worse. I, I completely understand that. And we can have that discussion. Um, lots of plants are, are trying to readjust their, um, their pay schedules, and they've, they've certainly done a lot of that recently. Is there more opportunity for that? Yes. Um, and we're, you know, we're looking at more creative ways to, to move that through, uh, through the system. But, you know, a couple of things that come to mind is what I mentioned about variation, um, what we need to keep track of in a plant um, as it relates to the end product um, and delivering that to our customer is certainly more complicated than uh, when I was in the plant uh, a few years back. Well, Dr. Delmore, I do want to thank you for joining us here on the Working Ranch podcast. But before I let you go, do you have any final comments? Yes, absolutely. You know, and this is not a this is not, uh, you, you know, undue praise. The, it's part of the system. And, you know, those of us who, you know, even in a small amounts have, have calved cows and have, have done that, we understand the value. We need to continue um, to explain to everybody that's in our system, you know, each part of the system has an important role. At the end of the day, it doesn't make any difference. If I get the best plant in the country, if I don't have calves coming out of each one of those programs leading into a feed yard, leading into my plant, you know, th- there is no, there is no tomorrow. So we appreciate, you know, what the folks do as being part of this beef chain, being part of this beef system. It is truly a, you know, beef system that goes from the beginning to the end. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks again for joining us. My pleasure. Have a great day. 
All right, Dr. Bob Delmore, professor at Colorado State University, my guest today, giving us a little bit more insight into the side of the beef business that I know a lot of us in the ranching industry don't really see day in and day out. Today's feature has been brought to you by Corteva AgriScience. Keep weeds out of the way with new Duracor herbicide and make the most of your pasture. Learn more at DuracorHerbicide.com. Well, stay with us when we come back. I'll have some final comments and look at what's coming up on the next episode of the Working Ranch Podcast. If you could do something today that would bring you profit tomorrow, would you do it? In the cattle business, it's about efficiency. And with limousine genetics in your herd, your profit is just one calf crop away. With limousine or Limflex cattle, it's more pounds naturally to sell at weaning. It's growth and feed efficiency with the added benefit of carcass merit. The other side of the profit coin with limousine genetics is the maternal efficiency, docility, and longevity of your cows and bulls. It's as simple as limousine today, profit tomorrow. Welcome back to the Working Ranch Podcast. Just a final comment regarding our featured topic today. One of the biggest reasons that I wanted to cover this subject was that so often in each of our own respective worlds, we can be considered experts. If you're a registered cattle producer or commercial outfit, a yearling operation, a cattle feeder, even a hobby operation, we're very knowledgeable in our day-to-day work. But for me to say that I know the cattle feeding business just because I raise cows is really probably not very accurate. Additionally, to say I know the beef packing segment is also not accurate. Yes, we're familiar with it and how it works because we're in the industry to to a degree. But I really don't have a grasp on the details of those operations. The understanding, the level of investment, the risk of capital, and likewise, I believe we can also turn the table and argue packers and some feeders don't understand the risk in the cow-calf business as well. However, if we can learn something about that segment that we don't have the day-to-day expertise in, then we can utilize that information to help influence our management practices that in the long run aids in being a sustainable and profitable operation for generations to come. Now, as Dr. Delmore emphasized several times, the seed stock operations, the commercial ranchers really do need to be commended for the huge improvements made in the quality of our beef here in the United States. Additionally, we can't ignore the scientists, the research that's been done to develop new beef cuts or get better utilization out of a carcass. And finally, advertising campaigns that push the value and the goodness of beef in a healthy diet. Better quality beef creates a better eating experience, creates beef demand. And that's what it really boils down to. And not one part of the beef chain from gate to plate can do it solely on their own. Well, coming up in next week's episode of the Working Ranch Podcast, we're going to be talking intensive grazing, specifically how to get set up, the infrastructure needed, what to be aware of, and the benefits. So join us on the next episode of the Working Ranch Podcast on intensive grazing. Well, before we go today, I do want to thank again my guest for this episode, Dr. Bob Dilmore from Colorado State University, also the captain, Tim O'Byrne, with his two cents. Also, we're able to bring you this podcast because of great sponsors like the American Simmental Association. And did you know the largest growth in bull breed type over the last several years has been bulls with Sim Genetics, Heterosis Works, which is why Simmental, it's more per head, period. Find out more at Simmental.org. 
Also, Central Life Sciences plan ahead with Altacid IGR fly control products, the North American Limousine Foundation, Corteva AgriScience, and their new DuraCore herbicide. Find out more at DuraCoreHerbicide.com and the American Hereford Association. This has been a production of The Working Ranch Magazine. And if you have questions, ideas for topics on the show, or would like to get a hold of me, please do it by calling or texting us here at the studio at 307-363-COWS. Or you can shoot me an email at justin.workingranch at gmail.com. Well, thanks again for joining me. I'm your host, Justin Mills. And until next time, keep your chin down and your mind in the middle. So long. So long.